In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will hear from Tim Humans, who leads stewardship for North America EOS at Federated Hermes. Hermes engages with companies on behalf of investors, and its scale is massive. It has just surpassed $1 trillion of assets under advice. Tim is a thought leader in corporate sustainability and ESG, with a particular focus on corporate purpose, which we will discuss today. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Tim. Thank you, Amelia. Uh, It's great to be here with you uh, because you are a thought leader not only in the legal arena as it as it relates to the topics that I'm interested in, but in sustainability of our society as well. And so I, I thank you for all your work. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, I, I'd like to focus today on your work in leading the engagement and stewardship teams for North America. Um, before getting into your specific role, can you tell us a bit about Hermes Federated more broadly? What do you do? Who are your clients? And give us a sense of the scale of assets under management. Sure. Thank you, Amelia. EOS at Federated Hermes is one of the world's largest investment stewardship providers, and we are the largest third-party investment stewardship provider. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, when an investor has uh, owns a stock, let's say, that they can buy it or sell it or hold it, but they can also vote. And with the right to vote comes the right to talk to companies. Well, Our clients that are mostly large pension funds around the world, the biggest pension funds in Canada, in Europe, Australia, and in uh, Asia, and increasingly asset managers, even in the United States, hire EOS at Federated Hermes to make voting recommendations for them to elect directors, for example, vote on shareholder proposals, CEO say on pay, but to engage year-round about the concerns that these large shareholders have that have intergenerational holdings. A pension fund is going to hold for a very long time, is highly diversified. And so therefore, since they really can't divest, even if they divest, they'll probably own the suppliers or the buyers of the company. The only choice that a large pension has is to engage and try to influence companies to make changes that the, the, the pensions and the long-term holders feel are, are in their long-term interest. And our assets under advice, as we call it, uh, just surpassed $1 trillion. Wow, that is an impressive number. Um, as you know, I'm very interested in the engagement process. And so I'd like to just ask you a couple of questions about that. Do you think that the increased focus on engagement by large asset managers is due to the fact that the externalities of one company, as you alluded to, affects you know, other aspects of their portfolio. And can you break that down for us? So in other words, a traditional investor might say, okay, you know, I'm gonna diversify my portfolio or I'm gonna divest from this particular stock. But what's different today with respect to how assets are held? Well, one thing that is different, and it's not the only difference, is the massive drive towards indexing. So indexed-based holders, asset owners, pension funds that put increasing amounts, increasing percentages of their money in index funds, essentially are keeping those in the index theoretically forever. So there really isn't a sell. 
There isn't, oh, do this company or we will sell our position. Because of the rise of indexing, a lot of these uh, positions are really somewhat perpetual. So therefore, what is left? What choice does an asset manager that is the manager of the index holding on behalf of asset owners, what choice do they have since they're really not going to be able in the macro sense to sell? What choice does the asset manager have to cause change at the company? That is engagement and voting. And we think that of the two, engagement is far more effective. EOS at Federated Hermes invented this field 15 years ago. Uh, now all the big uh, index providers also have engagement teams. And it just simply, it's, it's when you get to the traditional activities of a portfolio manager, they're diversifying, they are uh, hedging, but their loyalty is to the portfolio itself. It's, it's to, you know, having the best risk-adjusted risk return a portfolio manager is trying to achieve for their beneficiary. The, the world of engagement is completely different. You're not taking prices from the market. You're instead engaging with the company and trying to change the company for the long term, change the governance of the company, change its strategy about important ESG disclosures. And the last thing I'll say is that if you're a widely diversified pension fund, as I said before, with thousands of positions, it might not be possible for you to diversify out systemic risk. And increasingly large index providers know this, that they're so the funds are so big, it's very difficult for them to diversify out climate risk, let's say. So they have to instead, since they cannot diversify that risk out of the portfolio, the only choice they have is to engage with companies, use the power to underwrite engaging to help do things like encourage companies to mitigate climate change. That is Absolutely fascinating, and it also makes um, very intuitive sense. Um, I'd like to zero in on your role, uh, but first I'd like you to define something that is a word that's thrown around um, that many people don't know what it actually means, which is stewardship. How, how do you define stewardship? So stewardship, uh, as it was originally invented uh, by uh, then, uh, Hermes EOS. Hermes is not an index uh, investment manager, and I'm not on the investment side. Um, I'm on the stewardship side, but Hermes, as an active manager, not indexing, um, felt that, you know, there really could be a lot of insight gained for the long term by talking to companies about ESG issues, environmental, social, and governance issues, talk with not just management, but with boards, and how this links to strategy and long-term capital allocation. And that that would inform the active management buy-sell decisions. That was the, how, that's how stewardship was born 15 years ago, invented, uh, I don't think it's arguable, by uh, her, then Hermes EOS. Um, so, when Federated purchased uh, a majority stake in EOS, now in, in Federated Hermes actually, in, in Hermes, you know, they saw the value in this uh, and how it could enhance their investment activities. But what they saw, and their CEO has talked about this on earnings calls, the Federated CEO, is that the twofold 
benefit of stewardship, not just to an investment team's thinking, but to the broader society, the broader polity of the investment world, that everyone benefits from better stewardship, but really only when it's done at the institution level. You know, many, many investment funds say, look, we talk to companies all the time. We, we, we are portfolio managers are talking to them, you know, monthly, quarterly, we're highly engaged, but the fund as a sliver of an influence of influence compared to the institution that that is that fund is part of. And so really it's this larger voice stewardship at the institution level engagement talking to companies uh, on behalf of the whole investment institution, the whole pension fund, the whole asset manager with all of those votes behind it that really is the difference maker and you're starting to see a bigger trend towards this not fund level in engagement where maybe two different fund managers in the same institution could be on the different sides of the issue to now having policies about these large systemic issues human capital uh, plastics uh, climate change institution level policies for engagement on these really these system level problems Tim how do you define good stewardship first of all good stewardship is the asset owner or the asset manager having a robust dialogue with the biggest companies in its portfolio. So it's stewardship of the holdings and especially your, an, an investor's biggest holdings. Holding meaning the companies that are in its portfolio. From the flip side, from the company side, the benefit of, of recognizing and receiving being a good receiver of investment stewardship is that we feel it's it's the way to be, have an antidote to activism if a company is in a, has a good dialogue if the board of a company has good dialogue with its top 20 or 30 holders you know a lot of activists really don't stand a chance in our view because the most of the big holders now, and EOS at Federated Hermes, on behalf of our clients, is included in that, are in active dialogue with most companies that, that want to have this. So it's a two-way street. Good stewardship is a two-way street between a company dialogue that is at the company side and its largest investors. Okay, thank you for um, breaking that down for us so clearly. So before we turn to specific examples of social and environmental issues that you engage with companies on, I'd like for our audience to have a clear understanding of the mechanics of that process. I mean, do you call companies up? Do you have a cadence of meetings where you meet every month? Do they even want to meet with you? How does that process work? Well, we organize the, the, uh, how, how, what our approach is which was, has been going on for more than a decade, and we have swift history with all of these companies that we talk with. It's roughly the top 500 companies in our clients' portfolio, which are roughly the 500 biggest companies in the world. Now there is uh, some geographic balancing, some sector balancing. We do reach down and uh, talk to some mid-sizers or, or uh, high-profile smaller companies that could be uh, 
innovators, your game changers, but it's mostly the top 500 or so companies that we focus on. And we, we, we put them into tiers, the, the kind of the top third of the companies we'll talk to have a regular cadence of five or six times a year where we'll meet with the company. Could be in person, of course, not now, everything's virtual. <laughs> um, uh, always engaging around the vote. Um, and then, you know, a third of our companies are maybe three of that 500 or so is maybe three times a year and a third or maybe once or twice a year. Then we keep excess capacity for probably another three or 400 companies globally that we talk to around the vote or because of news or events that come up. But it's just, it's a cadence that is not brand new. Again, we've been doing this for a long time. The companies that the biggest companies are aware of our cadence and other big stewardship uh, engagers cadence. And so it's, it's usually uh, uh, you know, a pretty regular discussion focused on the board, but going through what we call the front door, the corporate secretary, investor relations, the head of sustainability, uh, and talking usually with the lead director. Okay, so that's who you talk with at the company. So it's a combination, um, and it's probably different by company, um, the corporate secretary, perhaps the uh, head of IR. Um, have you noticed an increase in the willingness of board members to engage? Well, yes, absolutely. And, and it's just a lot of companies are in distress right now. I'm aware that there's been a recent increase in the willingness to engage. Uh, again, we've been doing this for a long time, so companies do know us, but there's even more willingness now uh, because a lot of companies are in distress. And there's one point I want to raise uh, about these times and engagement. We also engage at EOS and Federated Hermes on behalf of our clients' debt holdings. And, and the power uh, is, is, as far as in the corporate governance world, is not just uh, ensconced in shareholders. In fact, shareholders have very limited rights. And when companies are, especially in the United States, in the vicinity of insolvency, bondholders have far more power. And, you know, when a company gets possibly, you know, needing government bailouts to have, uh, to maintain a solvency or liquidity, obviously the biggest bondholder, the U.S. government, can dictate terms. And, and many times companies that are near insolvency, the bondholders can do the same and it, with a far greater amount of power and force than in that this limited circumstances uh, shareholders might have. That's really interesting and it's certainly something that's gotten very little attention. Um, as you know, additional uh, leverage. Right, and and you know, for example, right now, what are bondholders interested in? Well, they're not interested in just return on principle. They're interested in return of principle, and of course, the biggest bondholder, you know, effectively or not, or that it's passed through from banks, is now governments and the central bank is just keeping the economies afloat, and that that passes through to corporations. So that's um, looking at engagement by directors from the perspective of uh, today and amidst the global pandemic. How about in the bull market when times were good and everything was um, you know, on an upward trend? What about then? In a bull market, uh, 
power of bondholders is, is still there, but it's less. But obviously, shareholders have far more say. Um, and the usual and customary perceived influence is that uh, most of the time, engagement is on the balance of engagement is on behalf of shareholders because underwrites engagement is the power of the vote and shareholders vote for the director's jobs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that certainly makes sense. So, so with that background in terms of the mechanics of the process, I'd like to turn to specific examples of engagement on a couple of social and a couple of environmental issues. Um, and it would be ideal to get granular, uh, but of course, anonymize if you need to, Tim. So first of all, engagement on social issues. So human capital issues are important to our clients. So what do I mean by human capital issues? Uh, you know, when I don't want to jump forward to statement of purpose yet, but stakeholders are very critical to the value proposition of companies to create long-term value. And it's really not a complicated idea. If companies take care of their employees, for example, and their customers, let's say their suppliers, then probably they're gonna do pretty well in the long term. Now, employees, taking care of employees, there's many social issues there. There's been huge uh, reputational problems that, that certain companies have had uh, related to, let's say, sexual harassment, uh, poor culture, in companies. There's lots of value that can be protected or destroyed by companies paying attention to employee-related welfare issues or not. And I just like to, to point out that the Securities and Exchange Commission is on top of this. On April 8th, the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission put out official SEC guidance that said and this is in the COVID-19 context, but it's, he said, we want companies to please put out forward-looking strategy disclosures that include strategies about employee health and welfare. So stakeholders, social issues, employee health, and just general social welfare, the SEC wants companies to be disclosing strategies about this. We've been saying this for a long time and there's again and then you go into supply change especially in the tech world there's been many employee related issues human capital uh and then in, in manufacturing industries child labor issues a lot of these can have very damaging uh uh effects on company value in the long term that that we're trying to mitigate by having companies stay on top of it from the governance level governance action and disclosure of these issues yeah, absolutely. There's been some encouraging signs from Chairman Clayton. I think he referred to human capital management as, quote, mission critical. Exactly. And so good to see we engage on public policy. Uh, we have met with the SEC, but our number one focus is just meeting directly with companies within the current frame of public policy. So let's move on to some environmental issues. Can you give us an example of uh, a company you've engaged uh, with and specifically reforms that you've asked them to make? Is it an executive compensation being tied to carbon targets? What does that look like? 
there's a there's a group that we're involved with called the Climate Action 100 Plus. I think it's 43 trillion dollars of investors that have uh, working together to get the 100 plus biggest emitters, corporate emitters of greenhouse gases in the world to commit to the Paris Agreement targets and to disclose their governance uh, uh, policies to to get their their the actions they're going to take. Uh, to get there. The best example uh, that I can talk about is our work at EOS at Federated Hermes with British Petroleum. We uh, engaged with the company. I think we had 42 meetings with the company, which is very unusual for us over the period of a year last year. Uh, because we were the co-authors of a shareholder proposal to have the company set robust uh, climate targets and have robust climate disclosure. The company, after lots of engagement and us working with them, uh, negotiating with them on the shareholder proposal that made it on last year's annual meeting ballot, the board of the company supported our shareholder proposal, which hardly ever happens if never. Wow. It passed with 99% of the vote due to robust engagement. Uh, and then later, I think it was early this year, and as a follow-on to this, BP announced its net zero strategy it's forward-looking strategy to achieve uh, a net zero emissions profile so this was a big win a big win for society a big win for our clients and this is this is how engagement can work where both the company and investors can come to agreement that's a fascinating example and congratulations on that terrific victory um sometimes in the engagement process, there's been some criticism that it's not transparent. These, you know, 40 plus uh, meetings that you had with BP happened behind closed doors. Um, what's your response to that? That's correct. Um, our, a lot of our engagements are, first of all, our clients hire us to engage uh, and to provide them the information about this engagement. Um, but we're very careful uh, where we know all the regulations in the global op world, the global uh, jurisdictions, the many jurisdictions within which we operate. And private ordering uh, is something that is kept walled off from our investment teams and from our clients' investment team. Private ordering is, is, the, is the private uh, discussions, the non-disclosed discussions. And this is because we're talking about long-term issues that no one is trading on, making short-term trades on. Uh, we're trying to cause uh, change at the governance level, uh, having different directors increase board diversity, increase cognitive diversity on boards, uh, changing long-term strategy policies, which interacts with, and one could say maybe stems from long-term capital allocation, you know, free cash flow, okay, you have that, then you have dividend policy, a long-term dividend policy. So money's left over. What's that going to be invested in? What stakeholders? Uh, is there going to be buybacks? Uh, are you going to be R&D, innovating? Just these big long-term policy level issues. And we think that's best uh, done uh, behind closed doors uh, in kind of a, a private uh, investor to company fashion. Uh, that really culminates every year in the publicly disclosed annual meeting, vote, and shareholder uh, resolution process. 
Mm -hmm. That that certainly makes a lot of sense that perhaps the power uh, in the engagement process and its effectiveness is dependent upon the fact that it happens behind closed doors. So now I'd like to transition to one of my favorite topics, as you know, uh, corporate purpose and enacting purpose. And you've really been on the forefront of advocating that companies should have a clearly defined purpose. You called the BRT's bluff, the business roundtable, um, and have asked its members to publish statements of purpose signed by the board, a call that you recently reiterated in a terrific article that you co-authored with Bob Eccles and uh, Judge Leo Strine, former Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. Why do you think that publishing yet another statement will make any difference? Well, thanks. And, and we hope it's not a bluff on the Business Roundtable. Um, we take it very seriously. We're glad to see that. Uh, this is an idea that Bob Eccles and I, Professor Bob Eccles of Oxford, have been working on since his, our days working at Harvard Business School. Um, we came up with this idea. We called it something different, but now it's a statement of purpose. And it's, it's just very simple. If CEOs of 181 corporations were willing to sign a collective statement, we think it's reasonable that each company have its own individual statement. You know, part of the value that our clients see in our engagement work at EOS at Federated Hermes is that we're talking to these companies one-to-one. -one, and each company is unique. Each company does have a unique value proposition. It's, it's not even uniform within a sector or an industry. And the way that each company creates value, we think involves stakeholders. And stakeholders being part of purpose is critical. Um, we think that the VRT uh, went a good way towards that. It said all stakeholders. We think each company should be more specific. It's gonna be very difficult for a company to uh, prioritize all stakeholders as, as the most important in contributing to long-term value. But, uh, we just think it's just it's just a very simple concept. If a company is going to sign on to a collective statement, then they should be specific about their own company specific purpose. And Amelia, you know, I could talk about this for hours, so I'll just uh, wait for your next question. Sure. And I think I was too harsh. I take back my uh, called the BRT's bluff statement because it was a um, extraordinary um, uh, move on their part. And um, it has inspired uh, so many companies to take a look at purpose. Um, so I guess, but my question is, it would be terrific if the board, you know, signed such a statement, but how do we ensure that companies are accountable to the stated purpose? First of all, I'd like to just address the board signing the statement of purpose for a specific company. We think it's very important, my co-authors and I, that the board owns purpose. Purpose should transcend management tenures. It shouldn't be just uh, the idea of the current CEO. Uh, we think a company's purpose is, is very, should be very for long-term sustainability of the company. Uh, as Colin Mayer says, uh, it should be to produce uh, long-term solutions for society profitably. We think that that's the domain of the board, just simply because it should transcend management tenures. The second point is that purpose should include stakeholders, as I said before. And 
the board can own this because stakeholders clearly are within the, the domain, the bandwidth of directors. ESG issues, we think, are the domain of management. Uh, for the most part, I mean, there, there are some directors that are conversant deeply on cyber, deeply conversant on the calculation of GHG emissions, but ESG issues get that contribute to long-term value, and there's only a few for each company that contribute to long-term value, uh, or that could be material risks, uh, they get very complicated very quickly. Stakeholders, though, let's say employees, customers, suppliers, uh, the community where uh, uh, the workforce is, or the planet as a person, as a legal person, as a stakeholder. These are all within the domain, the bandwidth of of a director and, and should be embedded in purpose. Companies, very simply, to guide their long-term strategy and to give cover to executives to, to, to fight back against excessive short-termism by investors can say, hey, wait a minute, I I really think that uh, I, under, I hear what you're saying, short-term investor, you want huge buybacks and us to cut back on R&D and give you, you know, uh, triple the amount of the dividend in this one year, but I need to invest for the long-term, invest in our employees, invest in uh, resiliency, invest in R&D and our product pipeline. Hey, my board, the purpose they're requiring me to, I'd like to keep my job as CEO, so that, that's what I'm gonna do, and actually, Two or three years ago, Larry Fink, in his annual letter to CEOs, said this. He said, part of the reason for having corporate purpose and for, for boards holding, uh, taking hold of this concept is to give CEOs cover, to give CEOs cover with investors to say, we are really investing for the long term here. We're having a long term strategy. So multiple reasons why the board should own it and why companies should be specific about their own situation, their own value proposition for the long term. Well, I know that there's a lot of exciting work underway with respect to corporate purpose, and I look forward to um, amplifying that work and to uh, continuing to share that with, with our audience. I, I'd like to now turn to um, magic wands and crystal balls, which is how I like to end um, the ESG beat each time. So if you could wave your magic stewardship wand and have corporate boards do what you'd like them to do, what would that be? Number one, I would like corporate boards to refresh themselves with new directors, a lot of new directors that are far more diverse. There's just a lot of analysis out there that shows that board diversity, increased board diversity is a long-term alpha generator outperformance. That's number one. Number two, we would like, I would like each board with my magic wand, I would wave it and they would, the board of every company, public and private, to issue a statement of purpose that includes the most important stakeholders and how they contribute to long-term value. Number three, I would like each board to have its management set a target for when it is going to issue an integrated report that provides the measurement 
of how the company is performing, not just on its traditional financial uh, performance, but also on long-term value critical material, the few most important ESG issues as well that are probably highly related to the key stakeholders enumerated in the corporate purpose. Sure, I hope you do get that, that wand, by the way. Um, and, and now let's look to the future. So now, now I'm gonna give you a crystal ball and um, ask you to predict, you know, how will we emerge out of this pandemic? What changes will we make? I think that, that we will have companies overcome their resistance to disclose forward-looking strategies that include two very important stakeholders and their value uh, to the company, to the long-term viability of the corporation as a separate legal person, uh, and to the long-term viability of, of our society. And that is strategies, as the SEC chair has, has, has put out guidance on, strategies that include uh, a focus on employees and their welfare and how they contribute to the long-term health of the company, and more far more disclosures, especially with scenario analysis on TCFD as a part of strategy disclosure on how companies are going to mitigate the physical and transition risk of climate change. I think those two things will come out of this. In that case, you can keep your magic wand and your crystal ball. <laughs> and I would like to thank you for, for your stewardship um, and for sharing your time with us today. And thank you, Amelia, for your leadership. And I look forward to working with you a lot more in the future. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.